Welcome to the Good Athlete Podcast, the voice of the Good Athlete Project. Rebecca Riccio is the founding director of the Social Impact Lab at Northeastern University. Her research focuses on using experimental teaching and learning methods to help students explore how to become more effective and ethical social change makers. She completed her undergraduate work at Wesleyan University and her graduate work at the University of Michigan. In addition to that, she studied twice at the Pushkin Institute in Moscow. I first met Rebecca in Boston, where we struck up a conversation while crossing Northeastern's campus on a beautiful day last spring, talking about climate change. She's intelligent, intriguing, creative, and has a clear ethical drive in a similar direction to us. She's trying to maximize the platform of education, in her case, for real, lasting social change, which, as we get into in the podcast, might be more necessary than many of us understand. Tune in to learn from new friend, great academic, and genuinely good human, Rebecca Riccio. When I think about what's important for me to teach and um, what keeps human beings from really doing good social problem solving, Mm -hmm. um, a lot of it comes down to how we're hardwired and how difficult it is to, to wrap our heads around complexity. No. Oh, my goodness. So I literally... I brought up two professors today. I had a meeting, a strategic plan meeting at the school I work at. Yeah. I brought up you and a former professor of mine, Tina Grotzer. I'm not kidding about this because um, we talked about both anticipating and trying to solve complex problems in the world today, things that we yeah. are facing, things that we will face down the road. And, um, and, and Tina actually talks about complex causality a lot and in in that discussion i then came back to this idea well even in something as you know just to enter a discussion like that wouldn't our physiological state matter could i have a a discussion and fully grasp the complexity of these situations after i'd pulled an all-nighter if i you know name any number of of degraded physiological states and it just becomes harder yeah it absolutely because um thinking that way is hard as it Mm -hmm. is Right, it's our our brains resist grappling with complexity. We want simple solutions. We want to see patterns. We want to have closure. For me to tell students that these problems that you really care passionately about could take your lifetimes to solve. Right, there may not be a solution. I can't tell you that. You know, if you're passionate about climate change or homelessness, that two plus two equals four, and if you do A, B, and C, D is going to be the solution to the problem. It just doesn't work that way. And so, just thinking that way is complicated. Mm -hmm. But then, when you come up against that complication, uh, that frustration, that ambiguity, it. I think it evokes emotional and physical responses um, because it makes us anxious. Oh, yeah. It makes us sad. Um, and so if you're coming into this space and you're not firing on all engines mm-hmm. intellectually, physically, emotionally, um, I, I don't think we can absorb the information, process it, and let alone solve the problems that we're thinking about. I've never thought never, of it that way. That that's incredible. And then so so you're feeling maybe sad, maybe you're feeling afraid. What do you do? You default to certain coping mechanisms, and certainly denial is one of them. 
Exactly. Yeah. And, you know, if you think, uh, I, I think there's so much actually in, in parallel between how I think about teaching this stuff in the social change space and what you, how you think about using athletics as a platform, mm-hmm. because what are we doing? We're creating these challenging moments, whether we're pushing people to their physical limits like you do, or we're putting them into competition with someone, or you're asking them to be their, their best self. Um, I'm asking them to deal with complexity and face these hard problems. We're creating challenging environments. We're creating dissonance Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. or discomfort in some way or another. And we're asking them to grapple with that. And you're absolutely right. We don't want to. Mm -hmm. And so what do we do? We go into denial. It's easier to pretend climate change isn't happening than to accept how bad it is. Right? Just for example. And so that denial shuts us down and it shuts down our ability to actually even perceive the problem, right. let alone try to understand it and let alone try to deal with how hard it might be to fix. There's so much mm-hmm. intellectual and emotional resilience that it takes to go there. And honestly, who wants to? That hurts. It's hard. Yeah, I, I never really thought of it that way. But yeah, e- even just the admission that this is going on at, at, at a real rate and at a scary level, you have to face the fear and the sadness and all those things. You have to face that first. And you face it only to recognize immediately thereafter that the hard work of finding a solution is coming. So it's like fear, sadness, hard work. And like so much easier to turn away. Who wants any of that? No, yeah. that's... that's um you, you run away. And what's even what's even more, um, I think, challenging is that if somebody's ready to offer you an alternative to that reality, mm-hmm. you're really vulnerable to taking it. Oh, gosh. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And, it, and, and that applies in so many different ways. I think when we're frustrated or we're afraid or overwhelmed, whatever it is, I think the risk of denial is huge. Mm-hmm. I think the risk of self-medicating and engaging in bad behaviors or self-destructive behaviors is mm-hmm. huge um, as, a, as a way of distracting ourselves. But I think we're also really vulnerable to alternative stories, right? right? Wouldn't it be nicer to believe climate change isn't happening and that it's a hoax or that we're in some kind of cycle? Of course, it's that's more um, comforting to believe that. And so all of these things make us um, not just bad problem solvers, but I think avoiders of problems and in some cases susceptible to false stories and false narratives about it. That's right. And especially especially in the uh, immediate gratification world of social media, what, uh, what, an e- what an easy dopamine hit it would be to find the counter narrative and sink right in and be like, oh yeah, I worried for nothing. Yeah. That yeah. complicates things for sure. What you were saying before, you're drawing parallels to the body. So... Uh, we say frequently that there's no such thing it, of, uh, there's no such thing as stress management if you're constantly seeking stress avoidance. Like you, you cannot both get good at the management of stressors and avoid them. You can, you can kind of pick one or the other. So when you talk about that creation of dissonance and, and stress, stressors at but not beyond a certain threshold, I think that's a really interesting parallel as well. Have you found, um, and, and we definitely do want to get into the, you know, the story of you, uh, but have you found that different people will pull back at different levels? Uh, like, oh, like absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. what does that look like? Um, well, so I think, again, like in athletics, I think there are more people who are naturally inclined to think in terms of systems. Mm-hmm. 
either intuitively they recognize that there's a lot of complexity in the world or consciously they've kind of mapped it out for themselves. And so those people, I think, can handle the introduction of these ideas more easily. Mm -hmm. And and sometimes it's stimulating them for them to hear this and they want more. But then I think there are other people who long for that kind of linear problem solving, who long for closure, Mm -hmm. people who want to know what the answer is. And, and I see them getting kind of overwhelmed. And it's scary to them because many of them will say, but no one's ever been honest with us about this before. Mm-hmm. And then here I come and I say, you know what? These problems are so much more complex and dynamic than you might have thought. They're going to take us longer to fix. They're going to cost more. They're going to be harder. And they're like, oh, no. It's even the world is even more of a mess than I thought. I thought I was coming here to learn how to fix things. Right. And instead, she's telling me it may take my lifetime. Right. To make a difference in some of that stuff. And and so that does it. It overwhelms people again, intellectually and emotionally, um, because I'm raising the bar to reality. I'm raising the bar and opening their eyes to the world around them. But then a couple things happen after that freak out moment. And I can tell, like there's, you can, I'm sure you see this on, on the sports field, right? The, the ones who are ready to go, who like take that challenge and the ones who are like, whoa, mm-hmm. that's beyond sure. my capacity. Totally right, yeah. yeah. Well, that's really interesting. I like that and, and so we have, before we can fix, we have to understand. And that's kind of where you come in. And there's that old, what is that, an Einstein quote, you know, if I had an hour to solve a problem, I'd spend the first 55 minutes trying to figure out what the problem was what the problem is yeah. yeah you know it's not a coincidence actually that one of the images that we use a lot in teaching systems thinking is an iceberg and we as humans tend to see the top of it and that's only like five or ten percent of an iceberg 80 to 90 percent of it is underwater um even the melting ones by the way <laughs> while right. we're sticking to the things we need to be thinking about um and so we like the idea that we can just chip away at that top, but underneath is where it's all really messy. That's right. right. The part we can't see, where we don't understand what kind of cultural biases are driving these problems, what kind of social norms, what are the politics, what's the economic aspect of it. Mm-hmm. And if you don't give yourself time to look beneath the water, to see the entirety of the problem, what are you gonna do? You're gonna start chipping away with your little pickaxe at mm-hmm. the top of the iceberg, and every little bit of progress you make, just more of it's gonna float up, right? And right. so the amount, <laughs> you're not gonna get anywhere. And so understanding the complexity of it, as you're saying, challenging how you perceive it, first mm-hmm. of all, mm-hmm. then taking the deep breath and really understanding what that problem is, if you don't do that first, you're not going to get anywhere. That's right. That's a really good point. So I've got this theory and I've said it to people before, and I, but I've never filtered it through an expert like yourself. So I want to hear what you think about this. And I'm not even... Okay, gonna, Jim's theory. Let's, I'm just going to say it. So okay. I try to recycle whenever possible. Um, I, I try to recycle. Yep. Um, I'm not 100%. But I try to recycle. I feel like it's worth doing. Yep. I'm also convinced that recycling is not gonna outpace the uh, what we've got going on right now. 
Yeah. And and I've and I've got I'm of and I don't know who came up with this, but I but I had this theory that perhaps recycling served two really important purposes. One, and forgive me for saying this, but one was placation. Individualized recycling might be a touch of placation, and two would be to essentially rally a, a, a people around the idea that yeah, this might be important to feel like they've got some stake in it, and hopefully that would play out someday in voting and legislation and things of that mm-hmm. nature. I, so can I, can I add to your theory? Sure. Yeah, yeah. Because I like your theory. Thank you. Because uh, <laughs> I agree, we need action on such a larger scale right. than we can ever achieve through recycling or through a lot of the things we can do as individuals. But I don't think that means we should or can give up. Sure, totally, um, totally. Right, like I, I think it's important and, and, and I agree with you, a lot of it is around raising awareness. You know, many people's first introduction when we were younger to the idea of being good stewards of the planet comes through recycling. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's a visual manifestation mm-hmm. of the way we're contaminating our planet. Mm-hmm. And so I think it does make it tangible and real. Yeah. It gives you some sense of agency. Like a lot of what we do is try to give people a sense of agency that you can make a difference. Is it enough? Is it gonna save the world? No, but if you can do that and you can have awareness of why that's important, then you can do something more. Then the next time you read about climate change, you're like, oh man, I, it's not enough. Right. We we have to we have to vote differently. We have to become better activists. So I think it does bring that build up that incremental agency. So so here's what I want to add to your theory. Yeah. Um, I think that we have a lot of cause for intellectual, emotional, and ethical dissonance in our lives, right? We've heard about climate change, but we're terrified we can't do anything about it. Mm-hmm. We sort of know about recycling, but we also know that it's not enough. Um, we love our kids and, and we wanna see future generations, but we know the planet's gonna be unhabitable, right? And Or possibly. That makes us feel really paralyzed. It comes back to that relationship between what we know and how we feel. Mm-hmm. I think when we live our lives in a way that's consistent with what we know, and we do what we can, Mm -hmm. I think it helps to manage that internal dissonance and makes us more empowered. I I think it lets us function at a higher level of agency so that that's where you get the strength and the courage to say, you know, I'm gonna go to a protest. Mm -hmm. I'm gonna educate myself more and I'm gonna learn how to make a difference. I'm I'm gonna vote differently. I'm gonna support a candidate I care about. But if we have all this dissonance that's leading to paralysis and fear and everything else, Who's, who's gonna find the motivation and the strength to do what we really need to do? Right, that's a great question. It, it's sort of, it's like um, in behavioral economics, it's like priming almost, or could it be? Like the, uh, the these smaller steps, you, you do it yep. over and over and over, so then when someone asks you, you know, what what's important to you in a candidate, maybe this is the thing that now comes to mind where before it, it would not have. Yeah. You're building up your muscle of activism. Ooh. <laughs> you like that? Do you hear this? That's a sound bite but I waiting think to happen. Are, you know, because honestly, uh, I was, I won't go into too much detail, but I was at a, a protest last week. Um, I guess I'm revealing my politics a little bit. Uh, you probably guessed. <laughs> That's right. But, but this protest involved um, stopping traffic in Boston hmm. during rush hour. Wow. 
And that was scary to me, but it wasn't the first thing I had done. I had worked my way up to having the courage to stand in front of a bunch of honking, angry drivers because this really was important to me and I thought we need to make a really big statement. Hmm. But you don't start there. Right. You don't start start by stopping traffic. You start by reading up on things, Mm -hmm. by understanding how elections work or how you vote or knocking on doors. Like little by little you build out your toolkit, just the way you build out your 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 physical capacity to engage in, in any kind of sport, or to do anything sure. really. Sure, Re- anything. We don't stop at the top of our game, we work our way to it. That's right, you don't write Moby Dick, you learn the alphabet. And exactly. down the road, exactly yep. right. So that's a perfect time to, I, I guess, ask you where this whole journey began. So what brought you to that point where you're standing in traffic, stopping traffic in Boston, <laughs> teaching classes at Northeastern? So how did you get there? Where'd your passion pick up? Um, man, I, well, I think I've always had um, just a strong sense of social justice and an inclination to fight for what I thought was right. Um, my parents were very involved in the community, um, just really strong values. Um, but I was always the one, you know, the, the first kind of rebellious. Oh, you'll like this. You'll like my first rebellion story. I, like um, I had the opportunity to participate in a program where we could take on these projects outside of class, outside of the normal curriculum. And I was really interested in journalism. Hmm. And it occurred to me that my high school was spending a lot more money on the football program than probably everything else combined. And girls weren't allowed to play football. And that struck me as kind of a violation of Title IX. Fair. Right? So I got a hold of all of the athletic budgets for the town. And I just did this analysis. And I had a great mentor. Um, It's like the role of coaches and mentors in our lives. Uh, this, This guy thought it was awesome that as a high school student, I really cared about this. And I thought it was unjust. And he helped me write a two-part article uh, that appeared in in my local town newspaper, kind of exposing this idea that a lot more money was being spent on boys sports than girls sports in my town. Um, So I guess that might've actually been one of the first things I did where it took courage to stand up. Um, You know, I I think standing up to your the institution, uh, the institutional power of yeah. your school system and boys sports, right? Like yeah. everybody, uh, you know, elevates that at that time, certainly sure. um, no, still. In, in my generation. Um, so I guess it kind of started there. Mm-hmm. Um, I and thought you were going to say, by the way, that you yeah. you saw that. And so you you went on uh, went on the practice field in, in August and took over the starting quarterback role and led the team to the state <laughs> championship. And you said, see? Anyway, sorry, go ahead. Oh, I wish. Yeah. No, I didn't do that. Um, I went to the Soviet Union instead during the Cold War. I kind of like, um, I think when I went to college, um, I, I still maintain this kind of like, I, I got to fix the world or I'm going to save the world kind of mindset. And uh, at that time, and this is, this is going to reveal my age, um, what we were afraid of was nuclear war. Right. You know, now I think if I were in college, I would be working on climate change. Um, and so what I decided I needed to do at that point was to study Russian mm. and go to the Soviet Union, even though at that point it was a highly 
Uh, I, I, it was a kind of risky thing to do. When you left, you didn't get to talk to your parents or write to them. We had no cell phones. Right. We had no email. Um, so you were you were really going out there. So at 19, I went to Moscow uh, for a semester and uh, decided I, I was going to start there. So that's where I started my career through Soviet studies um, in, in international development. That's amazing. That's amazing. So, okay. Um, I, there are so many pathways I'd like to go down. One of them is I want to examine um, the Soviet nuclear, got, gets me thinking about alternative energy sources, which I'd like to hear you okay. talk about, cleaner energy sources. Um, but after that, so there's a pretty big gap between that and where you are now. Right. What made you think that, <laughs> what else happened in between then? And, uh, and, and I guess what made you think that academia was, was the place for you? Yeah. You know, it's funny. My path seems completely erratic, but it makes total sense to me sure. because I was always looking for the next place where I could make a difference. Mm -hmm. I think that's the thing that has always pushed me. Mm -hmm. And so I had these skills in Russian. Uh, I was very familiar with that part of the world. When the Berlin Wall came down and there were opportunities to do international development programs there, I raised my hand. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I, I wanted to be a part of what I had hoped uh, would be a flourishing of democracy um, and democratic values. And I, I had had a lot of friends who were dissidents in Russia, um, either because of their religion or their political views or whatever. Um, and I, I really had hoped at that time, and obviously turned out not to be true, um, but I hoped at the time that my knowledge, my my uh, historical perspective, my my cultural and personal perspective might help, might be make me able to contribute mm. to that, what was going to happen next. Um, and so I started developing other skills in international program management and um, thinking about, well, how, how do you make things happen in other parts of the world? And, and after that, I had another opportunity to take, you know, my next jump, um, which a major, major problem um, in the late 80s and early 90s that was emerging was as the internet was developing, it became really clear that low-income countries in the global south were gonna be left behind. Mm -hmm. And so I took all of those skills I had developed in another part of the world and brought them to an organization that was building out these low earth orbit satellite communication stations uh, in remote places in Africa and Asia and in Latin America. So so that's like a very logical connection, right? Sure. It doesn't seem like it, but save the world, go to the Soviet Union, take those skills, bring them to the global south. But along the way, I couldn't help but notice that a lot of a lot of us, most of us maybe, who had really good intentions doing this work, mm -hmm. uh, weren't weren't doing things as well as we could. Uh, a mm -hmm. lot of wasted resources, a lot of unintended harms happening to people, mm. um, because I think a lot of people were like me, eager to make a difference, exuberant, energetic, full of ideas, and rushing around the world thinking we were going to fix things. Mm -hmm. And as I matured and, and had more experience and kind of got over myself a little bit, I was like, wow, we have to do this really differently because it's not okay. Mm. You know, when you insert yourself into somebody else's life with the intention of affecting change, first of all, that's kind of an arrogant thing to do. Sure. But second of all, it's a risky thing to do. 
And and I I have spent you know so I I can't pinpoint a moment when I had that realization, but but it, there there were a few times when I was involved with projects or or made decisions when I was younger, um, that opened my eyes to us needing to do things differently. And so I started thinking a lot about how to do it differently, and that led me to my position at Northeastern, where I now teach about uh, the nonprofit sector and philanthropy and social change, but not from the perspective of this is all great, go out and do it. Mm -hmm. But from the perspective of who are we to be doing this? Who are we to think we're going to change the world? And what are the skills we need to be developing in order to do that with a mindset of first, do no harm. Yeah, I was just going to say that. Yeah, Yeah. do no harm, don't waste resources, and and shut up and listen and learn Hmm. before you jump in and do. I, I, it's so encouraging to hear you say that. And again, so climate change and uh, athletics, you know, w- what's the alignment here? I think there's a, clearly a lot of it. Um, but, but if nothing else, that is, is very near the heart of the Good Athlete Project as well. And I think one of the reasons just to, and I, we won't get too far off track here, but the alignment. Everything always comes back. That's the, when you're a systems thinker, you know that everything's it, related. So exactly there is right. no getting off track. That's exactly right. This is just identifying an alignment because when we set out, first of all, that was, there's a guy named Jim Builder, Bildner. Um, when I uh, was in grad school, he gave me that same advice, gave us that same advice. Rule number one is do no harm. Um, and then, and then they, a lot of that humility was an important part of it too. Like, wh- like who are you and why do you think you can do this work? You, you have to be able to answer that question. Um, yeah. Desire and passion isn't necessarily enough. You know, why do you have a skill set? Why do you have a perspective? Whatever it may be, why can you do this work? And then that final humility piece is, uh, you know, look, just pull back and look and ask questions and listen to people is something that I, I think was not being done enough in our sphere. And I hope if anyone who's in uh, a similar organization listens to this podcast that, that they will know that I mean no ill will or anything like that and and maybe I'm not talking to you but what we saw in a landscape analysis of character development through athletics was um, probably probably a little bit heavier a hand than than should have been meaning to go into a place like the south side of Chicago which we are right beside yeah um, to go into the south side of Chicago and hey say hey do it this way you know this, this is how we do it over here just do it like that I, I mean, forget the, the the ethical conversation that might erupt from that. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yes, a huge but, one. You know, but uh, but it's also just it, it doesn't seem like it'd be that effective. It, it wouldn't take yeah. long to realize that. Exactly, yeah. exactly. I am so on board with that because here's the thing, and this is what's super cool to me about teaching systems thinking and strategy. Mm-hmm. Here's why I'm so excited. You just said that. Yes. Because I totally agree. Mm-hmm. And I would say that I believe that systems thinking and ethical reasoning are two sides of the same mindset. Hmm. So in talking about the scenario you just described, going in and being heavy handed, what's happening there? One is you're not respecting the lived experience right. of the person whose life you are presuming to help. And so the minute you do that, you're disrespecting them, you're disempowering them from being part of whatever it is you're trying to accomplish, Mm -hmm. but you're also making a huge strategic error. 
because you're not understanding the landscape. You're relying on your own perception of it, which is inherently false. Mm -hmm. It gets back to the top of the iceberg thing. You're only seeing the piece of it that your experience allows you to see. Mm -hmm. And you're going to make a mistake. You're going to miss all the nuances. You're going to miss the cultural and social context um, because it's not your lived experience. Right. And so I think that you can't make a difference unless you recognize the relationship between the ethical components of how you interact with other human beings and the strategic necessity of understanding the complexity of it. It's the same, it's kind of the same thing. Mm -hmm. It's really interesting. I, and I think maybe, you know, I, I, it seems obvious to me, it's obvious to you, obviously. Yeah. And so the question becomes, well, why don't people see it for what it is? And I think it comes back to the way we started this discussion, which is because that's hard because yeah. we, because, you know, and, and you alluded to it, but the brain is a pattern seeking sort of organism. And, and it's like it just wants to see in chunks and patterns because uh, it's all about efficiency. And if it can do that, then it can just churn longer and longer and longer. Uh, but that's a faulty model in a complex world, unfortunately. Yeah. But what happens is we become really susceptible to buzzwords and silver bullets. That's right. That's right. right? And, and we reward, we reward the behavior that seeks a quick fix. Mm-hmm. Right? Like think mm-hmm. how many times, I'm, I'm assuming as a nonprofit organization, you have sought funding from donors and, and mm-hmm. foundations and stuff. Mm-hmm. And so often the challenge is, okay, well, we want to know what your outcomes are in six months or a year. Mm-hmm. Right? How are you going to quantify for us how much of a change you've made in people's lives? Mm-hmm. How are you going to quantify for us, you know, that these students are better at this, that, or the other thing? Sure. Human beings are really complex uh, creatures. By the time you get to them, they've had many years of inputs into who they are. A lot of things have shaped who they are. How can you really honestly quantify That's right. your your isolated impact on them and monetize it in in a year? Mm-hmm. And yet that's what we're told to do. We're, we're told to achieve these measurable outcomes in short periods of time. Yeah. Or we're taught to, well, come up, come up with your solution to that problem, develop a business plan and put it into action. You know, we, we encourage students, you should start your own nonprofit. You know, all of these things that we um, encourage people to do are just perpetuating the problem because we're not investing in long-term patient, deep uh, mm-hmm. systemic solutions, we're looking for quick fixes that make all of us feel better. Because wouldn't that be nice if we could, you know, text $5 to that number and that child that you just saw hungry in the global right. South, they're, they're going to be better. I'm that, you know, that's not going to happen. Yeah. But man, it feels good to think it does. That's right. Oh, man. Yeah, there, again, once again, there are so many parallels to draw with, you know, from, from your work to our work to really, I think, just the social, the nonprofit world uh, in general. Um, we, we think the same thing. You know, the, the, there are, help me, Alex, if I start to point myself in the wrong direction and, and name names here. But there are, I, I think there are people who would suggest that um, y- y- never raise your voice only be positive these are the ways you know whatever that, that that's how we fix sports culture as an example or on the flip side of that get rid of football 
get rid of these hyper-masculine sports and we'll have fixed all these other issues. Um, these, are, these would be, and, and correct me if my language is wrong, but those would be instances of more like linear causality. Oh, mm-hmm. football is a problem. Get rid of football. Instead mm-hmm. of digging into like who, who these human beings are and what the, what the systems are that are either encouraging and enhancing or, or whatever they might be. Right. So. Yeah. No, I think you're right. I mean, um, that notion, like get get rid of get rid of these hyper masculine sports or whatever. I have two boys who I think are awesome human beings. Mm-hmm. I I don't think we have an atmosphere of toxic masculinity in there. I I think you're awesome. It's not that there's a problem with men playing sports. My kids right. are both athletes, right? right? There's something else going on here that is being manifested yep. in the way sports culture has evolved in this country. There's something that's being manifested mm-hmm. in the way, for example, that awesome female athletes, awesome women athletes are being paid less than awesome men athletes. What are those things? Those aren't sports per se. Mm-hmm. Those are these deep-seated cultural and social norms that are bubbling up into all sorts of environments, sports, the workplace, politics, Um, if we just address them on that superficial level, um, they're going to just pop up someplace else. Now, I don't think that means we can ignore when these toxic or dangerous environments are happening. Right. You know, we need to call people out. We need to address it. Um, We need to keep people safe wherever they are. We need to keep our our children safe. We need to keep student athletes safe, et cetera, et cetera. Um, We need to put protections in place for everybody who could be a victim to these behaviors. Um, But we still need to dig deeper into where they're really coming from. Mm -hmm. Uh, At the same time as we're taking these short-term protective measures, we need to be taking long-term systemic measures. That's right. That's and, right. And you used a uh, word earlier, deep, doing the deep work of, of really understanding so that you could build from the inside out. And, I, and, and I'm excited to say that I think that's where we sit. So I, I agree with you. I don't think on either end of the spectrum, I don't think sports are uh, sports should not be seen as the villain, the villainous platform that is wrecking young people and pushing them toward this, that or whatever. Just like on the other side. They're not this sort of divine platform that where life lessons are absolutely imparted and things like that. It's just it, it is this platform that we have a natural uh, drive toward for, for whatever reason. 40 million yep. people playing sports in the U.S. Like we just like it. So it, and it's a platform. We happen to believe it's a really unique platform for a variety of ideas, whether it's exercise-induced neural enhancement or the like you said the, the the mentorship and the coaching that goes on or whatever it might be or and and then what you do with it matters. It always comes back to intentional intentionality, being really thoughtful about your decision-making processes and and um, to us. It always comes back to us. Recycling is not going to make the is not going to save the planet. Football is not going to make your kid a, a demon. Uh, yeah, wh- whatever it might be. What, yeah. just, what sports do your boys play? Um, I have an older son who played hockey and volleyball and soccer, and a younger son who plays volleyball. Um, cool. My kids are both um, they are athletes and musicians and political activists. So I also want to make the point that you can be a multi-dimensional human being and wear those different hats or play those different roles that might not seem necessarily compatible. They work for my kids um, and they work for a lot of the kids we know. So uh, that's, that's so good. Yeah. So anyway, um, I, I'm really excited about something you just said um, about sports are a platform. Mm-hmm. 
I think my classroom is a platform. Mm-hmm. I think that one of my best realizations as an educator, as a social change educator, is that I am far less valuable to my students as an expert than I am as a facilitator of meaningful experiences. Wow. And what I what I mean by that is the things that I think are most important to teach them or the things that I think are most important for them to become ethical and effective social change leaders are things like humility and empathy and respect, same same kinds of things that you care about, right? Mm-hmm. Perspective taking, uh, cultural agility, systems thinking. And, and when I really sat down and, and reflected deeply on what I want them to get out of the experience of the time they have with me, I realized I can't actually make them learn any of those things. Mm-hmm. And I can't even really test whether they've become more empathetic or that's more- very, That's right. Re- respectful, like there's no test. I mean, I, I mean, I could over time, you know, develop studies and, and sure. um, but then I wouldn't have time to teach them the content I'm supposed to. Mm-hmm. So that there was a moment where I was like, man, I, I can't teach them what I think they really need to learn in order to be ethical and effective social change leaders. So what, what am I supposed to do with that? I, I don't want to give up. Um, so I thought what I can do, and I, I think why the methodology I use works is I can provide these experiences in the classroom that evoke that kind of dissonance and those challenges we were talking about before and ask them to engage with what those what they're feeling Mm -hmm. are you feeling overwhelmed by the complexity of systems thinking uh are you recognizing that you want to change the world and yet there's something you know kind of not quite right about just going into somebody else's life and in those moments when they have those visceral experiences we work through them and I teach around those moments hmm. and I, I encourage them to think and in those moments they can start to reflect on who they want to be. Hmm. I can't make them be who I think they should be, mm-hmm. but I can create experiences that allow them to think about who they want to be. And hopefully some of the lessons, some of the context that I'm providing in the classroom will stick for them and be meaningful for them. And that's self-authorship. Right. Mm-hmm. That's that's deciding in that moment. This is making me feel really bad. I have to work my way through this. Mm-hmm. And part of the way I'm going to work my way through that is by embracing these ideas. I have to be more humble. I have to listen better. I have to learn about these situations before I jump in and do it. And I, I think it's similar with what you're talking about. It's the experiences we facilitate, not the not the specific data or information that we try to drill into their brains. That, that's right. And we do try to quantify as much as we can, but we know that there are limitations to that. Because like you said, if you're teaching your students empathy or complex systems thinking um, or, you know, character is such a fleeting thing. And to ever be able to test for that, I, I guess you look for behavior over time, but even one's behavior in the moment um, is so contextual. It's just a... It, it seems almost silly. We've fallen victim to the quantification of these ideas and, and not what's really at the heart of the matter, which is probably over the next 10, 20 years, we need some really thoughtful, adaptive thinkers that can adjust with technologies and complex uh, and ever-increasing problems. So with that in mind, will you tell us why that that idea is so important? What are we looking at in the next 10, 20 years. We were on, just for context, we were on on a beautiful day in Boston. You and I met on a beautiful bridge, uh, walking over a 
uh, a train track between this uh, on this beautiful campus. Yeah. <laughs> uh, nothing. And you always seem to have a smile on your face. You seem very lovely. And and you hit me with some hard facts. <laughs> so can you scare our audience just a touch? Yeah. And, and I want to put out there that I am not a climate scientist. Okay. Um, I am a mom and a social change educator and a political activist who believes that climate change is uh, one of a couple um, monumental crises that we need to be um, looking at. And and what that means for me as an educator and as a parent is understanding what that can look like. Mm-hmm. And it's it's a really hard truth. Um, we even some of our best case scenarios are are kind of scary. Um, when we look at food systems and understand what's happening with pollinators and what's happening to water access, that's that could become really cr- critical. Uh, when we look at seawater, uh, sea level rising, um, what that means for coastal environments and our urban, our cities on, on the waterfront, uh, that could be really devastating. Um, parts of the world are, are going to become uninhabitable. We're not going to be able to grow food. We're going to run out of water. So I, I really think that the challenges that my children will face as adults and that their children will, will certainly face uh, if they choose to have them are really scary. I mean, these are potentially existential threats mm. in in many ways. And so what does that mean um, in terms of how I think about building these skills out that people need for the future? One is this ability to wrap our heads around these problems. Mm-hmm. And that requires uh, an intellectual capacity to understand the complexity of them, yeah. to understand all of these interrelated, the, the political, the economic, the environmental interactions that are happening. Um, but then in understanding those comes a whole lot of fear and anxiety. And so there's that emotional element. And then there's this issue of, you know, what what happens when you live in a world where maybe there's not enough food and water to go around? Mm-hmm. And, and we have an enormous immigration crisis because people are leaving um, communities that are no longer able to support them. What are we? Right. What are we going to do with climate refugees? And what are? How are we going to think about the allocation of resources? There's an ethical component to that, yeah, no doubt. And and so I think that all of us have an obligation, not just to be teaching the facts about climate change and not just to be scaring people, but to be helping young people intellectually, ethically, emotionally develop that muscle again, mm-hmm. right? Like yeah. developing developing the intellectual, ethical, and emotional muscles, the grit, the resilience that they need, mm-hmm. regardless, I would say, regardless of what their field of study is. This is not just for climate scientists. It is not just for people who are interested in study food systems. It's for all of us mm-hmm. um, to, be, to be learning and developing because it's gonna be the reality for everybody. I'm with you. I'm, I'm taking notes here because uh, whether adaptive critical thinking, resilience, I think optimism has to live in there somewhere. Yes. Uh, and and just continually enhancing senses of community and why and, and how to work as a team. To like, mm-hmm. So I'm going to go ahead. And, you ready for this, Alex? The Good Athlete Project is going to save the world because we're going to show people how to work as part of a team. He, I'm not gonna tell you what his face looked like just there. I think he's only. <laughs> but you know, you know what? Yeah. That that is one of those simple truths that ring yeah. true, though. Yeah. Because if we're not team human, mm-hmm. yes. what are we gonna do? 
are the people who are fortunate enough to live in areas that still have water and can still grow food going to hoard everything? Mm-hmm. Will the super wealthy just build their enclaves and dig down deep or, you know, go up in space right. and protect themselves and, you know, whatever happens to everybody else just happens? Um, or are we going to have a reckoning with being part of Team Human mm-hmm. and and starting to make decisions that reflect our obligation to each other um, in a future, in a world that's going to become increasingly challenging to live in. So I don't think it's a crazy idea at all. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. You heard it here <laughs> first. The Good at Athlete Project is going to save the world. <laughs> That'll be our new mission statement. There you go. It's um, all right. So what do you think uh, before, you know, what do you think some of the scariest outcomes of climate change specifically are? And like, I know you're not a climate scientist, but yeah, but um, the one that scares me the most right now. Yeah. Um, I think the thing that scares me most um, is the crisis with pollinators and food systems. And for people who don't know what that looks like, I think I know what you're talking about. What what yep. might that look like 10, 20 years from now? And, so and what, what is that, a pollinator? Right. A pollinator, those are the insects that literally pollinate the food that we need to survive. Mm-hmm. And um, I, have, I have read statistics that say about one out of every three bites of food that we consume has been produced because of pollination. Hmm. So that's a lot. Yeah. Um, so we need pollinators. We need them uh, because, you know, as I just said, they produce a lot of our food or they make a lot of our the growth of a lot of our food possible. And yet they are dying off in large numbers mm-hmm. um, due to toxins in the environment, uh, due to disease. Um, and so we're now relying more and more heavily on honeybees, for example, that are farmed. Right. And that are that are being moved around. We are now actually commodifying insects mm. uh, so that they can help with our our diet uh, and, and the food that we need to survive. The problem with that is that puts a lot of stress on the on the colonies. Mm-hmm. And if something happens, uh, if there is an epidemic among them or, you know, th- th- it's a market product, there are market forces on them, they're getting stressed to, to be transported to specific parts of the country for specific growing seasons. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's kind of scary to yeah. think that that's, what, that's how we have reduced the natural order of things mm-hmm. from a world that is abundant in the kinds of insects that pollinate and do this just as part of the normal life cycle mm-hmm. to now relying on commercial honeybee farmers sending them around the world or at least around our country um, to work for us on our time schedule where we want them to be um, disrupting their their normal cycles, disrupting their normal eating patterns, et cetera, et cetera. That's kind of crazy, mm-hmm. you know. Like when you, it's become normalized. But when you step back and you look at it, I, I find that incredibly frightening. Um, and people who are hungry uh, are not inclined to always make, you know, you, you you when you when you're hungry, you start to move into survival mode. And you know, we all we all know what can happen from that. Desperation. You know, like, I'm with you. Yeah. People don't know. You talk about having integrity. You talk about being empathetic and whatever. Uh, be hungry, not like you be hungry, snack, like hungry, yeah. hungry. Yeah, 
And and I also want to say, because I think this is hugely important, mm-hmm. um, I, I think the food systems issue can can become pretty big pretty quickly. I worry about that. But more important than what's going to happen down the road is what's already happening. Yeah. You just have to look at the immigration crisis on our border and at some of the stuff that's happening in Somalia uh, in in India with with uh, land that's becoming um, d- turning into desert places where we're running out of water people are experiencing incredibly um, dangerous and and um, difficult conditions already and unfor- it happens it's tends already to be happening to people who are already from low income and marginalized. Uh, communities. So it's not like this is down the road. It's now. It's now. Um, so it it makes me, you know, and when I start thinking about, well, what could what could make, you know, if our food system collapses, that's going to have huge economic implications. It's going to have huge political implications. That's all very high level. We don't even have to go there. Let's just watch the news and mm. see how many millions of our brothers and sisters around the planet are already living this. It's pretty amazing. And this is not as serious as the food scarcity and, and uh, lack of water that you're talking about. But I have this really clear image in my mind right now about when I was a kid in Chicago and um, we there were just we were at a park and there were bees. I remember getting stung by bees. I have zero fear of getting stung by a bee right now, but I have this very clear image. Um, we would put you put honey out to attract the bees so they would sort of stay away from you and your picnic or whatever. Uh-huh. I'm, and, and now I'm like, that's just a, such a poignant, for whatever reason, snapshot of my childhood. And now I'm telling you, I just, I could not envision that. Like, uh, Alex, literally, like, when was the last time you you saw, like, a swarm of bees? Or you, you were like, you know what I mean? Yeah. I, I or how mean, about butterflies? How about butterflies? J- well, I, 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 just for sake of being honest, I saw a butterfly today, but okay. not, but not as same idea though. Yeah. It's just they're not. It's just not happening. And and I, I wonder if I, and, and I just sort of missed it. And I think I missed it as I was growing up. And I think because these are sometimes slow processes, mm-hmm. it, it, you just don't see them. And I'm reminded we were just looking at this today. Have you ever heard the speech "This Is Water" by David Foster Wallace? Yes. I, I, and it, I, and it's not yeah. the exact. It's not the parallel. It's not exactly what he was talking about, but it's like it's almost like um, it's just we're just kind of wading through this thing uh, without bothering to look at it and actually recognize what it is that we're wading through, and and it's changing. It's and it's true, and that's why when we get a census of various populations, um, whether it's insects or, or mammals or whatever it is. And we start looking at these numbers. It's horrifying because mm-hmm. it, it did happen relatively gradually. But w- things are starting to reach tipping points. Right. Um, right. And and it's becoming, you know, talking about systems, right? These these phenomena are reinforcing each other and escalating. And so they're getting to the point now where we can't ignore them anymore. We right. see these extreme weather events. We see um, heat waves. We see Alaska hitting 90 degrees. We see icebergs and glaciers just you know disappearing and melting at huge huge rates so you know i and the thing is getting back to what i'm not not a climate scientist i i don't need to be in order to understand this right like i I think none of us needs to be at this point there is enough information out there for all of us to become perfectly well informed about it um and yet how do we um how do we grapple with that you said you know we need optimism we need at the same time as we're talking about 
developing the the intellectual, ethical, emotional resilience to be able to grapple with this, we need to let people still find the joy and hope and love mm. that makes all this worth fighting for. Because what what will motivate us to keep going if not that? And we have to keep going. You know, there's too much on the line not not to fight for this and yeah. and not to keep that optimism. Yeah, that's so good. I just got the chills. The uh, <laughs> well, it, it's true. It, it, it's it's we we talk about impact. Um, the way we try to work our impact model, we talk about understanding motivation and access. You know, which one of these is missing? Um, I, I part of the motivation here is that. Is, is what you just said, you know, reminding ourselves that what we're like, this is why we ought to do this. This is worth fighting for future generations, your kids, your grandkids, whatever it might look like. That's why it's important to, you know, somebody's got to step up to the plate. And we're at the point where it's it's this, it's us, it's right now. It is, uh, it is right now. So, yeah. um, I like that. Yeah, it is, it is now. And, and if not us, then no one, right? Because, yeah. We're 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 not talking things are going to get just a little bit worse if we don't do anything. Things are going to get a lot worse if we don't do anything. If not us, then no one. So, have you seen the movie The Dead Don't Die? Have you heard of that? I have not. Should I put it on my list? No, I don't know if you should. I I, I got it got mixed reviews from the people that okay. I saw it with. But uh, are you is anyone are you comfortable with a spoiler alert here? Kind of. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Go ahead. You sure? Oh, wait, is your audience going to be comfortable with a spoiler alert? I don't want people getting upset with you. Hey, audience, spoiler alert. Okay. I don't know. Fast give forward. Them a I, I, that's fair. Fast forward a little while. Um, what is it? 15 second burst. I'll try to get this in under 30 seconds. Here's how it goes. <laughs> Bill Murray's in this new zombie movie. It starts. It's like a regular zombie movie, but it's sort of outside itself. It breaks the third wall. It makes these jokes, and Bill Murray has some nice dry moments, and and that's that. And I watched it because I'm a Bill Murray fan more than anything. But I, but I, I I don't. It wasn't. It wasn't too explicit. But I think there was a conversation about climate change going on. And the reason is there were these zombies and they were talking about all these things that we've done to ourselves. And actually Tom, Tom Waits narrates some things. And, um, and there's this weird figure. And soon you find out that that figure is from another world. And that figure has this uncanny ability to stop the zombies. And then at the end, okay, this is the real spoiler alert. So if you didn't fast forward <laughs> enough. Uh, Wait, can I- can I? Can we just stop for a second? We're talking about zombies in this podcast right yes. now. I, I kind of love this. I told you nothing was unconnected. I mean, this is <laughs> this is the world we live in, uh, and they, you know they were. I think in part they were, they did they did some semi interesting things using zombies as just people to kind of mindlessly and selfishly moving through the world. I think, but yep. but uh, so if they were doing it as, as intelligently as I think they were, that's what they were doing. But anyway, so they and then at the end, this 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 figure from another planet, this extraterrestrial figure who had this power to take out zombies really efficiently, they just left. And it was, and and the movie, like, she doesn't save people. It's a female heroine. It's actually great. She doesn't save everybody. And we're, we're sort of left to deal with it on our own again. And that yeah. kind of, and I, I really did see it. It was shortly after I saw you. Maybe that's why it was on my mind. Um, yeah, because I, I put your mind to zombies. I, you switched the <laughs> – exactly. Flip the switch to zombie. 
But it was, it just reminded me, it was like, so we, this thing has happened. We, we had a hand in creating it. We are now tasked to deal with it. And I think there is just this, I, I want to distinguish optimism from, from uh, anything that's like, you know, any, there's some outside savior that's going to come do this for us. And I think that was what the movie was getting to was mm. like, okay, there, here's this thing that, you know, everyone, all the audience is like, oh, that's what's going to cure, cure right. all, save We're all waiting for the Avengers or something. And they're not coming. So yeah, got, which disappoints me tremendously. I have to say, I am an Avengers fan. I, I would love to see that happen, but it's it's not going to happen. I, I think you're exactly right. Um, so this is this is why I'm so excited. It's like you cued us up here. You talked about the extreme weather. We have something called the lightning round. Okay. You like that? Uh-oh. Mm-hmm. So, Alex, once we get this... Are there, there going to be sound effects? What's going to happen? There's no... Undoubtedly going to be a lightning bolt or a thunderbolt sound effect. (laughs) The lightning round. What was your first job? My first job was running the first federally funded teacher trainer program in the former Soviet Union in Eastern Bloc after the fall of the Berlin Wall. As far as first jobs go, I'm not really (laughs) sure. That's... That is certainly, uh, that's probably the most interesting answer I think we've ever gotten. Well, so I was, the reason I paused and said, let's start over is because I thought, well, maybe I should just go with babysitting because, you know, honestly, that was like the first time I ever did anything and got paid for it. But in terms of first real professional jobs, that was it. (laughs) I love it. I like it. And, you know. I, I should have prefaced it as well. You could have gone any direction. You would have like, I would have accepted babysitting, but certainly the answer that you gave, not to uh, knock babysitters of the profession, but. No, I think babysitting is a really good, babysitting and waiting tables are jobs that everybody should do at some point in their life. Without a doubt. Definitely be in the service industry at some point. Yep. Yep. What is your favorite book and favorite movie unrelated to your field? Okay, favorite book, this is a sentimental favorite, is 100 Years of Solitude by Gabriel Garcia Marquez. And my favorite movie is Cinema Paradiso, an Italian film. Hmm. And if you haven't seen it, you must. It is the sweetest movie ever. Yeah? I don't think I've seen it. In fact, I know I haven't. I don't know why I I hedged my bet there. I have never seen that movie. Cinema spelled in English like cinema, right? Mm -hmm. So. All right, I'm gonna add that to my list. Is that on Netflix? I, I oh, I bet it is. I bet you I think. Bet All right. Yes. Perfect. Making we'll, it easy. We'll love it. Great. Um, oh, one question, and this is a follow-up based on our previous conversation. You had mentioned being a uh, fan of the Avengers series. I am. So I'm curious, uh, which Avenger speaks to you the most? Who's your favorite of the of the crew? Okay, I'll be honest. I kind of crush on Thor and Captain America. Okay. However, however, the one I aspire to be most like is Black Widow. Not with all the icky stuff she did before she became good, like post-transition Black Widow. Of course. <laughs> of course, naturally. <laughs> you know, she's got some dark stuff in her history. I want to skip that part. Yeah. Well, yeah, I think we I think we can. I think you Okay. I think you seem like Based on everything you've told us, it seems like you're headed down the trajectory of just whole good into the world. I hope so. so. Yeah. I, I hope. So. Yeah. Well. Yes. Because if I could you imagine if I used my powers for evil, that would just be Oof. scary thought. Yeah. Scary thought. <laughs> um, 
one the the next question I have for you is you just listening to our conversation last time uh, you are an incredibly inspirational person everything you've done all the good things you've put into the world and I'm wondering uh, who inspires you to go and do things that you do <sighs> um, right now there are a lot of women in politics who are doing amazing things who inspire me um, People like Stacey Abrams inspire me. Elizabeth Warren inspires me. But I've been thinking a lot about, actually in part because of our conversation, um, where that comes from originally. Like what sets you on this path? And I gotta say, I don't think I realized it till I was older how much my parents inspired me. Um, they were amazingly committed to community service and to family and uh, were infinitely generous and kind. And so... I think I gotta say the original inspiration came from them, although I didn't realize it at the time. Love that. It's great. They sound like wonderful people. I have not met them, but they sound wonderful. They were wonderful people. Um, next, mm -hmm. in our conversation, we talked a lot about climate change and, and some of the things that are coming there, and I, I guess some ominous things on our horizon if we don't change our ways. I was hoping we could leave our audience with some reasons for optimism as well. Yeah, do you know, um, all right, so here, somebody asked me this the other day, like how do you stay optimistic? And the amazing thing about being human is that you can hold two completely contradictory ideas and feelings in your heart and mind at the same time. And so for me, even though I am afraid of climate change and I'm very um, upset by it, I also believe that we do have the power to make a difference and that you can always, always be in service to the good, no matter what the conditions around you are. Um, and we have that ability to make that choice. And we have the ability to find hope and joy and love uh, as long as there's one other human being in the room with you, you can be doing good and you can uh, and you can be releasing those positive emotions. So that's I think that's amazing. That's our superpower. No matter how bad things are, uh, we can be doing something for the good. Love that. Empowering. All right. We're going to end on this one. OK. You are undoubtedly a leader in your field. What advice would you give to a future leader that hopes to embark on a similar journey? I would encourage them to figure out what their personal truth is. Right? Figure out what you really believe in. Figure out what you are willing to do for it and be honest with yourself. I think always try to function in the place where you're being the most honest with yourself about yourself. Awesome. Uh, fantastic advice love it uh, and I think ended the podcast on a empowering note very positive note always oh I hope that. so because I am like you know like nobody expects the Spanish Inquisition nobody expects me to like lay on all of this heavy stuff so I'm glad you, I'm glad you think we're gonna end it on a positive note without because we should we have to yeah and I think a, on a on a wholly positive note to take everything in at the same time uh, this was a fantastic conversation I think the audience is really gonna enjoy it we, we really appreciate your time and you coming on and speaking with us it means a lot and yeah I, I think uh, regardless of of the content sometimes going in a little bit of a less positive direction on the whole yeah. 
you know, uh, making the connection with you and being able to sit down with you and have you on the show is a positive thing and getting your message out there is a positive thing. So on the whole, incredibly positive. Oh, thank you, thank you. I so enjoyed it. This week's episode is brought to you by Remind Recover. Remind Recover is a supplement that helps athletes support brain health. Similar to how you drink a protein shake to help your muscles recover after a workout, Remind Recover has been scientifically formulated to give you the nutritional building blocks to help support healthy brain function. I am a huge fan of Remind Recover. It is as close to the science as any supplement I've seen, and feel free to check out their website for more. It's remindrecover.com. And when you go there, if you want to place an order, and I recommend it, use the code GOODATHLETE for a discount on checkout. 